We're not affiliated with Netflix. Welcome to Kid Flicks, the podcast where adults try to definitively rank every kid's movie ever made. I'm your host, Ross Wiseman, and this show is not for kids, so turn this off and sha la la wop Um, my guest today. Oh boy. Uh, my guest today, uh, he's a comedian here in Philadelphia. You can catch him at his monthly show uh, at Jose Pistola's, a great uh, uh, restaurant and bar here in Philadelphia. It's Alternative Comics, a showcase of queer and BIPOC comedians. Uh, it's Johnny Michael. Hey, Johnny. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing all right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Uh, this is This is a fun experience because... Uh, us recording this right now, this is the first time that we have spoken to each other and heard each other's voices. We're that uh, fun new breed of like internet first friends, but uh, I'm glad that you can make time uh, <laughs> to come on the podcast today. Oh yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we're talking about Little Shop of Harps. Yeah, so I mean, let's let's get into this. So um, uh, we were talking before and, uh, you know, this podcast is about uh, kids movies and uh, we have done ones that kind of appeal more to uh, like teens, young adults. Um, where does kind of Little Shop of Horrors uh, sit with you uh, from your childhood or uh, your just growing up in general? Well, you know, we were we were never a cable family. We we were poor. We only had network TV, so we had to watch what was on network TV. And when this came on, it was like it was like premium content, right? It was like one of the most well worked out, thoughtful, funniest things. So anytime Channel Eleven or whoever wanted to run this this movie, we'd see the commercial and be like, "Oh yeah, we need to be in front of the TV at like exactly eight so we can watch this." And it was always billed as family friendly entertainment. But I'm looking back at it now, and I'm like, wow, this is dark as fuck. This, yeah. <laughs> this is an incredibly dark movie, despite how funny it is. It's full of domestic abuse. Um, there's a crazy sadomasochistic sexual scene between Bill Murray and Steve Martin that I didn't understand when I was a kid, but I sort of did, which is weird. So I thought it was amazing that it... <laughs> y- as a kid, you would watch this and you'd get the funny parts and you'd get the messed up parts and you didn't understand all the messed up parts. Like you didn't understand the sexual stuff necessarily, but you still got that like this is wrong. The way the dentist is treating her isn't okay. Um, it, it, I think it's amazing that this was just billed as like a kid's movie and still is. But then you go look at Wikipedia and they're like, oh yeah, black comedy black comedy and I'm like mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty and it's, it's, pretty it's funny dark, that you say but- that of like uh oh it's it's for kids and like i this is a go-to for so many uh like high school and middle school like theater productions and yeah similarly to you i grew up with this movie um we i think we had it on vhs uh we had both the movie and the uh like broadway musical soundtrack on cd that we would listen to all the time and yeah i i understood what this uh, the whole story and what was going on but yeah like the visceral bits about uh uh audrey's uh issues with the dentist and just how mistreated uh seymour is and all of these little things and just like oh what it means to be in kind of the quote-unquote uh like bad part of town like the boonies the uh the or skid row i guess is what they call it and uh yeah it's it's always been interesting with this show how the uh just like recontextualizing these little 
things and snapshots of your childhood are. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the few things that that brought in like a bit of struggle, like working class struggle, poor struggle. And it reminds me a little bit of like, this is going to sound weird, but Cheers. Because Cheers was something else that like started out with like this really sad song that drew you right in like you, like you'd hear that song from another room and you'd be like coming in from the other room like oh it's on and and then you'd see like these images of people just like trying to like deal with their pain and like the guy holding up the sign that says we win for like the union fight stuff like that i just always thought that they were connected in some way yeah i i really like that because uh i like this is a movie and a show in general that really plays up and it touches on the uh, just grittiness of real life. And sure, it is still a very kind of campy and over-the-top production. Like, it's it's all filmed on, like, clearly some New York soundstage. Uh, but it's... Yeah, it was actually filmed at Pinewood Studios in England, which uh, Eddie Izzard broke into as a teen. And Eddie writes about that in his autobiography, which I just read. Oh, wow. Uh, and I also read that they were filming Little Shop of Horrors the same time as aliens like the second movie in the alien franchise <laughs> uh, really yeah it, it, but yeah it's just like the this movie is campy and over the top but at the same time you do get these little glimpses into the more working class life that a lot of kind of musicals and big budget or not a big budget but movies will kind of avoid and kind of sugarcoat like um somewhere that's green green like the big uh, song in this movie where Audrey is dreaming of a better life. It's a funny song because it's, uh, you know, her dreaming of the very dullness of suburbia and just name uh, shouting out all these different brands like Pine Sol and putting plastic on the furniture. But it also comes to this really real place where she is living in this rundown neighborhood. She is in a terrible relationship and dreaming of this blandness and kind of uh, cookie cutterness is what is keeping her going. And I think that is such an interesting thing to uh, dive into in what is a musical based off of a B-movie from the 60s. Yeah, I think also it's amazing what consumerism does to you when you're poor. Because like, because she doesn't have these things, her vision of what a good life would be is that she'll look like Betty Crocker, she'll look like Donna Reed, or cook mm-hmm. like Donna Reed. She'll, you know, she'll bring the sandwiches into the Tupperware party where the other moms are waiting. Um, I also think it's interesting that Seymour's there in that vision, right? Even before she gets to suddenly Seymour where she realizes what she wants, she's already kind of ideating that she's going to go with him. My boyfriend doesn't like the ending because he doesn't, he thinks that Seymour fucked up and doesn't deserve to get a good ending. And I'm like, I don't care. I spent that whole movie on Audrey's side. I want her to have her ending, and she needs him to have the ending that she wants. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> Seymour needs to win. But that wasn't their original ending. Originally, Seymour was That's supposed true. to get eaten by the plant, and then the plant was supposed to take over the world. And if you go on YouTube, there's like a 20-minute extra cut of the plant just destroying the United States. Yeah. It's really bad, but it's interesting that that's what they wanted to do. Yeah, and I think that more closely follows the musical, because I think the musical was a little bit darker and a little bit more uh, intense like that. It's also, the musical is a lot longer. This movie is a real breezy 90 minutes. I mean, boy, you're in, you're out. It works. Um, But yeah, a lot of test audiences had trouble with the kind of sad ending. And uh, 
while watching this, I kept thinking of uh, because the the music was written by and the screenplay was written by Howard Ashman, who uh, famously worked with Alan Menken on uh, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. He was a longtime yeah. uh, Disney uh, creator. He also uh, uh, famously uh, died in 1991 uh, after contracting AIDS. Uh, and kind of Disney in the past 20 years or so, and a lot of uh, the society has started to recognize Howard for the work that he did. And you can kind of see this like grittiness and kind of hopelessness in a lot of this work because it's dreaming of a better life. It's kind of uh, the world is harsh out there and things aren't going to be easy for you just because you really wish hard. You're going to have to make hard decisions and uh, sacrifice a lot. And I think you see a lot of media from this time period in the 80s and 90s where these people are uh, closeted or are out and they kind of have to hide from it uh, in plain sight because of what society was like at the time. But they have this very unique worldview that seeps into all of their work. Oh, that's an amazing take. I didn't know all that. That's surprise. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, and then a completely different uh, uh, side completely. Uh, This is not a rare movie, but one of the few movies that was directed by uh, Muppeteer legend uh, Frank Oz. And uh, yep. again, like uh, you feel a lot of that mentality of like essentially puppetry in this uh, movie, not just because uh, Audrey too is a puppet and was actually partially uh, puppeteered by Jim Henson's son, Brian, uh, but it has that kind of lightness and uh, doing as much as you can in the camera and on stage itself instead of just slapping CGI all over it. And I think that really shows. And like I had to look away uh, at some points watching this movie because Audrey 2 is just like really unpleasant looking uh, at times. And it was legitimately making me kind of stressed out. But that just kind of speaks to I think the uh success of that uh that giant puppet yeah yeah and Ellen Ellen Green is just I'm sorry were you saying uh you were worried about the way the the puppet looked or about Ellen Green well I mean the puppet was definitely uh hard to look at Ellen Green is incredible in this movie and so much that like when she was when she's doing like her voice, her Audrey voice at some points, I was like, I'm having yeah. trouble listening to this voice as well, just because it's so specific and uh, like I think you know playing off of a, a like a '60s trope. But boy, oh boy, she, it's deeply affecting. I think she's the only person from the Broadway cast who was in the movie because how correct. could they possibly replace her with that voice of hers? It's amazing. It it just breaks you to listen to her talk. And and sing like when she really starts belting out like you get a little bit of it in Skid Row and then later in Suddenly Seymour she really goes for it and you just oh wow I didn't even know that someone with a voice like that could sing like that and oh the the metaphor of like you know like this this diamond in a rough it's it just is amazing to me I can't I cannot believe her voice yeah it, I've, I've I've always been a huge fan of voice acting and like I just she murders me I can't believe yeah, how good she, she is. She absolutely is fantastic. And like when she's singing suddenly Seymour and she she still has to use her character voice, but how 
you're right, how she kind of transitions into this really deep, soulful belting. And it's like you see this woman just being like beat up by society figuratively and unfortunately literally and this is her moment to kind of let it out and finally follow what she wants yeah. to do yep and she, and you know she could she could seamlessly like everyone in this film go from poignant to funny and back you know like they're they're having the conversation right before suddenly see more and it's it's really emotional and then and then she said, you know, I, I've led a terrible life. I deserve to creep like him. You know, where, where I met him in the gutter, it's a night spot. I put on cheap and tasteless outfits, not like ones like this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just, she, yeah. Her, her deliveries, oh, man. I wish, I, I don't think I've ever seen her in anything else. But she, it's, she's it's like one of those people where she's so much like a, a, a stage person. She did uh, that show Pushing Daisies a, a decade or so ago. And she's fantastic in that. Um, but, uh, oh, check uh, that out. Oh, definitely recommend. It's so campy and beautiful. And also about plants, kind of. Uh, but y- you're right. that This movie is so funny out of nowhere. Like, um, uh, she's late to work. She has the back black eye. And uh, her boss, Mr. Mushnik, who owns the flower shop where everything takes place, he asks her, were you tied up? And she says, no, just handcuffed. And, like... Boom, just in and out. <laughs> Little jokes like that are great. Uh, also, it's funny that we've been talking for almost 15 minutes and we haven't mentioned Rick Moranis yet. Like, yeah. uh, there's a reason that he is just the best at what he does. Like, an actor that doesn't feel like he's acting. He just completely embodies all of these different characters uh, that he uh, plays. Like, this is right after Ghostbusters, right before Spaceballs and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So he's well known, but I mean, he's not going through the motions. He is really working in this. Yeah, I, I saw a commentary where they said that it was just wonderful to have him because he's a, he's a really good person. He, he's just good natured. It's good to have him on set. He makes the other people on the set feel good. He's He never, to my knowledge, ever sang in anything else except this. And his voice is really good. He, he he kills it, but he, this is the only thing he ever tried to sing in, and I can't believe that because he was so great. Yeah, he, like he's one of those people where he sings, but it's not he's not really singing. He's just kind of hitting the notes, but uh, especially I think with uh, Seymour, you need to have somebody that isn't necessarily a fantastic singer. He uh, just kind of goes through it and i think like he had a lot of experience with sctv and uh uh just second city and stuff uh in early in his career and i think that kind of teaches you to be humble be a character that can be a little bit more grumbly and down and out and not have that overtake you and and you don't become like the schmaltzy guy like he co-starred with Martin Short. Martin Short took all the small schmaltziness and Rick Moranis took kind of the low status uh uh, less stated roles, I guess. Yeah, SCTV was is wonderful. It's it's hilarious if you go back and look at SCTV. And recently for Halloween, I was going to do George Carlin for a show, and so I went online and I started looking for help with voice acting to get George's voice. And voice actors say, like, you know, if you go online and you can't find a lot of people doing an impression of somebody, it's probably because it's very hard to do an impression of their voice. And it turns out there's like no Carlin impressions at all. 
except Rick Moranis did one on SCTV. And I read Carlin's biography last year, and Carlin was devastated by this because it was the end of the 70s where he was... He, he hadn't changed yet. He hadn't become the incredibly smart comic and social critic that we know him for. He was still kind of just doing a lot of wordplay. Mm-hmm. And it, it was dying. People were saying, like, you know, the 70s are over. We're done with Bell Bottoms. We're done with George Carlin. So on SCTV, Rick Moranis starts doing bits where, he, where he's just dressed up like George Carlin. And he's just like, what's the deal with Beats. Beats. <laughs> beats. Beats. <laughs> Carlin wrote in his biography that like it really hurt him, and but also it was one of those tolls that he heard that made him realize like I have to change with the times. I have to become something different. I have to become more than an entertainer. Wow. Um, yeah. That's sorry that's to take really it aside inter- from. No, that's that's really interesting because like you hear a lot about you know like celebrities that are like oh my god. Uh, I was parodied on SNL or like Weird Al did a, a parody of my song and it's such an honor, but. Uh, I guess depending on where you are in life, like seeing yourself reflected and being like, oh, this is what people see me uh, and think of me. Uh, and I do not like that. It it was not flattering. It was not flattering. There's one bit there where they're like, they're like, uh, here's a romantic film with George Carlin. And he's like, what's the deal with relationships? It's not a ship. I'm not the captain. And <laughs> just, just really zeroing in on the fact that he was almost entirely like twisting words and using that up and down lilt and had little else going on at the time. Although he had, you know, he had done seven dirty words. He had been entertaining. He had been on TV, but he himself recognized that he, he said in his biography, one of the things that got him was the bunny number on Ed Sullivan. He was like, I guess I don't want to do the bunny number. I don't want to wear the bunny suit. I'm not like everybody else. I need, I need to change. And then he became one of the greatest He's also one of the only comics I know of who started out misogynistic, saying stupid-ass dumb shit about women, who went on to say, I was wrong. I should, I did, I didn't, that's not what I should have done. And then Andrew Dice Clay was like, I'll take it from here. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it from here. And now, and now he gets booked at Soul Joe's as like, you know, he, I guess he doesn't do that character anymore, but we, he still gets support. Mm-hmm. Having um, never apologized. Eddie Murphy never apologized. Right, a lot. Uh, <laughs> when we're still working on Chappelle. Well, speaking of Eddie Murphy, he was one of the people considered to voice Audrey too, huh. and that's uh, and that's Ross's masterful transition. <laughs> masterful uh, transition, Ross. Excellent, excellent work there. Yeah, I guess it would have been a little more nutty, Professor, than if we went <laughs> if we went in that direction. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Eddie Murphy would have also played. Uh, Mr. Moshnick and regular Audrey. Uh, he would have been everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would have been like Donkey from Shrek. The oh, whole yeah. thing would have been... <laughs> I, yeah, believe, because, I believe, I uh, believe, I believe. Audrey, too, is uh, is voiced by uh, uh, Levi Stubbs, who, who is, uh, you know, a, 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 a singer, an R&B singer in uh, the 60s and 70s. And I am reading this from his Wikipedia because he's one of those people that I know his name and I know his body of works, but I cannot really articulate it better than uh, a biography about him. Uh, But there's a lot of just really surprising cameos in this. I like when I saw this as a kid, I had no idea who anybody was, but like four huge people. Uh, Bill Murray, Christopher Guest, John Candy, and Jim Belushi all have like these very brief scenes that 
watching this because this movie came out in 86 and obviously like these four guys are big but they're so different big back then because they're all kind of fresh from uh uh saturday night live and kind of their own other comedy projects but they haven't really hit that uh like legendary status that honestly probably steve martin by this time was already in that camp yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know who Steve Martin was. I had no idea who Christopher Guest was. I guess most of us didn't. I mean, he probably may- maybe had done Spinal Tap by that point, if that. It was I did not clock that later, as I found Christopher The Mighty Guest. Wind and other things. Yeah, oh, Sorry? Mighty Wind is fantastic. I, like, I didn't it clock is. that as Christopher Guest. Like, I, I was like, who is that? And then I just was looking at Wikipedia after watching, and I could not believe that it was him. And I rewatched that scene, and I was like, I don't recognize this man. Like, he just disappears into characters and just fully commits it's wild how uh how he can do that yeah I mean, he he the way he just walks in what a weird character he where he just walks in and goes that's such an unusual and interesting plant in your window <laughs> wherever he, did you oh get man it? his dead-eyed stare and like oh i love him like he he legitimately looks like a robot in that um and then yeah. you already kind of <laughs> hinted at it uh before but bill murray uh, is uh, a masochist who uh, <laughs> visits uh, Steve Martin's dentist character for a long, slow root canal. And uh, uh, so I, I haven't seen the original 1960 Little Shop of Horrors because I don't want to. But yeah, uh, me neither. <laughs> so this character is based off of a character in the original film. And it was then in the 60s, in 1960, played by Jack Nicholson. That was one of his first roles. And I couldn't really oh, find wow. a clip. I didn't really get any information. But apparently he kind of played this like weird masochist role of a guy that just has like four or five dentist appointments a week just so he can get his rocks off. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Jack Nicholson around that time, 60s, also did uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is also, you know, one of the darkest things ever. That's true. Is it, well, so uh, let's see. So timeline, Little Shop of Horrors, the original movie came out in 1960. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest didn't come out until 75. Like, Oh, okay. This That dude has had quite the career. Uh, like, uh, yeah, looking at his Wikipedia, like the shine, the Shining came out in 1980, so that's kind of, I guess, the closest thing. Uh, Chinatown came out in '74, so uh, like it's those things when you watch an old movie and you think, oh, that person has become the biggest star ever, like Tom Cruise getting a two-line walk-on in some random movie, uh, and of course they had to include that character in this movie just because. Of course, it was fucking Jack Nicholson all the way back then. The den- the dentist stuff is amazing. I mean, K- John Candy and Bill Murray are probably the only two cameos I recognized when I was a kid because they were they were all over. I saw them in so many things. Sure. And um, looking back at it now, it's like, wow, this was not this was not lampshaded at all. I, I guess I, I I guess they thought you know kids won't know what this is and the adults will. And so that'll make it okay, but it really, it really is very, very sexual, um, and it's kind of accurate. I mean, oftentimes the the masochist doesn't want to do it, the the sadist doesn't want to do his thing for somebody who's enjoying it. That he only enjoys it under non consensual terms. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, 
if you're gay and you date, you might have seen this. So <laughs> I, I just, ah, I can't, I can't believe that that was in there and how amazing it was. Yeah. And I didn't pick up on it whatsoever when I was like seven watching this. Yeah. I mean, I knew there was something weird about it. <laughs> I, I didn't know quite where they were going. I wonder what my parents were thinking. They must have understood what they were talking about, or maybe they just had blinders on. Maybe everybody did. Totally. Uh, but I think also what's interesting about, so Steve Martin is the dentist, Oren Scrivello, and uh, it's a really interesting seeing Steve Martin in this role because it's Steve Martin, so you automatically kind of love him and think he's great, and he plays this at 11 the entire time, so over the top, but that means he's also like really leaning into the shitty parts of his character, this like sadistic guy that's abusive and ends up being the first human victim to Audrey too. And like, he's funny. Like that dentist song that he does is legitimately great. It's a fun song and it's so silly. And you're like, I can't hate this guy. He's so cartoonish. But then you see how he treats Audrey and you're like, okay, let's get this fucker in the plan already. It's like a really good. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. Like Audrey can't convince um can't convince Seymour to kill the guy until he looks across the street and sees him hit her and then he looks back at Audrey and he's like I'm in. Mhm. And then it all goes too far. Uh uh I think this movie also and I didn't really click on it uh, as a kid too, but I like how it kind of tells this story about uh you know wish fulfillment and how uh sure money can get you stuff but then you if it's not something that you're passionate about or you're being manipulated into you're you're not a happy person like money doesn't bring happiness like he kind of talks about that to audrey right before suddenly seymour that sure he has money now but he's miserable at what he has to do to maintain it absolutely how but yeah and even his desperation um and 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 unhappiness being poor and being exploited by mushnik and so on isn't enough for him to take that step it's only when audrey audrey pushes him but i i remembered it like seymour killed him and that did that's not what happened seymour tries to kill him he's like in the room mm-hmm. with the gun in his hand shaking but ultimately the dentist just overdoses on his own laughing gas well, it gets like stuck and like the valve comes off. Uh, but yeah, I it because I'm also trying to think Seymour, I don't think kills Mr. Mushnick. Mr. Mushnick like threatens him and then Audrey too just kind of like gobbles him up. So it's almost like Seymour's hands aren't literally dirty, but he has to lure people and kind of uh, seat out people to bring to the shop. Yeah, and he and he is able to take the step of of you know hacking the body up to feed it to the plant. That's right. Yeah, that's yucky. Um, we also haven't really talked about <laughs> it. What is your favorite song in Little Shop of Horrors? Oh, you know, in the in in the movie, Skid Row is deeply affecting to me. If I listen to it on Spotify or something, it's not quite the same because there's something about the way they set up the shots with all the people in the streets and all the movement that yeah. really kind of gets to me um and the fact that different people in it have different voices like the, the way the slop the guy says skid row versus the way the, the the black man steps forward and really belts it out and then like it, it keeps shifting to all these different people who who have again again voice acting just really affects me just just hearing the range of way of the way that people do it 
That really and Rick Moranis, I think that's the first one where he sings, and man, when he's got this honesty to it, and it ah, and the way it ends up with him and Audrey on the street corner, that one, that one really gets me. the The total eclipse of the sun one, which is called um, Dadu Dawu or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's just like the duo, two two duop syllables are the name of the song or something. Something mm-hmm. I always thought that was just. That was just hilarious. The, the with a lot of it just being him talking, you know, for a dollar ninety five. I I always thought that was so yeah, great. and it's like so goofy and over the top. And honestly, like this part was the only thing that I'm like, this this is the only part of the movie that I think aged very poorly and didn't really work for me. Like, cause uh the the part with the Chinese florist and. I don't know the context of it in the original uh, movie or the musical adaptation, but once it's the late 80s doing this like Chinese caricature, even if it's kind of trying to defend it of like, oh, this is Seymour telling the story, so it's over the top. Boy, it is uh, like not great. But uh, again, (laughs) it's like that's really the only part of this movie that made me squirm a little bit but yeah i i agree with you skid row i think is probably the best song i have like a musical theater playlist on spotify and i think i put grow for me onto it just because that's like an easy one to kind of sing by yourself or when you're walking around yeah i actually wanted to give you like my uh, like a quick gay parody of it Ooh, okay let's let's hear it this is the kind of thing that my boyfriend and i would sing to each other of course i've given you penis i've given you spray I think you're a homo. I think that you're gay. I'll give you a few thrusts if that'll appease. So please blow for me. Wow. Holy shit. We've never, I've never had a guest uh, serenade me with a song parody before. Usually it's the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to connect with another music comic and I'm glad that we're going to do that music show together on the 9th. Yeah, that's right. The 9th uh, of December, when you're listening to this, that'll be about two, three weeks away. So uh, definitely uh, keep your eyes peeled for that for Dalek in West Philly. Um, uh, another gay parody that I guess you could do for Little Shop of Horrors uh, would be Somewhere That's Peen. <laughs> uh, or honestly, just like feed me and just sing it regularly uh, <laughs> the whole time through. Uh, the, the one that I, I'm trying to think, like looking at the track list, if I had to choose a least favorite, uh, actually probably Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. Like it's it's fun, but it's like at the end and uh, just seeing all the little Audrey 2 pods like just makes me uncomfortable. I just don't like little things like that. Like it's just kind of gross to me. And uh, that yeah. that that section of the movie kind of drags for me. Like. You, you can so sort of tell the they spent their budget on the beginning and the middle, and at the end, they're just trying to get through it. Yeah, and also, like we said earlier, they completely cut uh, the ending because there was, you know, that 23-minute ending where Audrey wins and takes over the world. So by cutting all that out, you're they. I can understand them trying to, like, uh, uh, just quickly wrap things up. Yeah, and they must have spent a lot on that because it, it's all puppetry, which costs a lot more per scene. Um, and th- they had a lot more special effects in that. I think he ends up on the Statue of Liberty or something. Like, a, like they had to make models and things. Yeah, and, uh, and then they like, had to cut it. Yeah, and then the army attacks, and also yeah, like then the, the army ar- attacks. <laughs> the the original song from the musical "Don't Feed the Plants." 
that's like a whole cast number. So they probably had like everybody singing and doing that and like cutting a whole song like that. Uh, you like, yeah, you got to scramble. But I still think it is kind of nice that they destroy the shop and then they, uh, uh, Audrey and Seymour, they kind of move to that house that uh, Audrey was singing about earlier. And sure, you see that little Audrey 2 bud at the end and you're like, uh-oh, but, you know, things are kind of wrapped up. And that that made no sense. That was just them like, oh, maybe we'll want to have a sequel. We'll just, we'll just, we'll, the plants will still be there at the end. <laughs> yeah, or it's, it, it's like it the really... end of the Thriller music video where Michael Jackson turns around and you, it freezes and you hear Vincent Price laugh. <laughs> That's pretty much how I see it. I also, I also really like the opening song. First of all, I think it's really funny that there's a prologue with an opening scroll of text like it's Star Wars or something. Mm-hmm. And... And um and then I just love love this is great because I watched it recently with my boyfriend and he had never seen it his whole life never seen it and it, the the singing starts and the camera pans and then the singers come out of the alley and that's so fucking funny because you're not expecting to see the people who are singing the way that the shots set up yeah and then the whole movie is actually through the perspective of the backup singers yeah look out look out look out look out it's it's so fun uh like. They're, they they bring so much energy to it. Like their faces through the whole movie are just amazing. The ridiculous outfits they they picked out for them for all these scenes, including like when they're like yeah, they keep popping up and they like fit in and like blend in. It's so funny. Yeah, yeah. When they're they're like dental assistants, they're office workers at one point. Yeah, that's right. That's my mm. favorite. The red dresses they have during some fun, some fun now. Yeah, uh, and these Incredible. are uh, t- so two of the three of them are. Uh, like have Wikipedia articles. They are like well-known singers and actors. Uh, uh, Takina Arnold, Michelle Weeks, and Tisha Campbell. Uh, Takina Arnold is currently on the CBS sitcom, The Neighborhood. uh, And she's kind of been acting since uh, Little Shop. Uh, Tisha Campbell is uh, just kind of a regular working actor as well. She's also been on a bunch of different sitcoms and shows. Uh, so like it's, and yeah, they really carry this movie. They just like have that energy and they are just like totally buying into every single second of it. Yeah. There's no main character in this film that is a person of color, but they are, the whole film is through their viewpoint from, from the first scene to the last scene, even, even in the last scene, the last thing you see is before, before the fact that Audrey two isn't dead, which is, doesn't need to be there. just a bid for a sequel and they never even got it. But the last thing you see is them waving goodbye. And I think that's important because without that, you know, it would just be this movie about white people where they picked like a black man to be the voice of the villain. And, and that would be like really wrong. But instead you get this totally flip yeah. thing where it's from their perspective. And also like, like little things like the start of Skid Row, it, it starts with, with this tired, heavy black woman coming down the alley singing about how fucked up things are. And she murders that. Yeah. So that, that is, she's incredible. Like when you listen to that song in the soundtrack, you're like, yeah, her, uh, that is Burtis Redding who uh, was a, uh, uh, she was just a live singer for years and years. Like she did a lot of uh, Broadway and stage shows. This was actually her last uh, uh, movie appearance or one of her last appearances in general because she died in 1991. But interestingly enough, born uh, right here in the Philadelphia area in uh, Chester. 
So uh, that's right outside the city in Delco. It, you, she could have run into Mayor of Easttown herself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she is like a, a legendary uh, singer as well. And I think that's important too, because yeah, like you said, uh, this whole cast is predominantly uh, white, but also the music style is all like this 50s doo-wop R&B inspired stuff that uh, was uh, created by people of color and then co-opted by like Elvis and the Four Seasons in the 50s and 60s. Interestingly enough, one of the Four Seasons, Bob Gaudio, uh, worked on the uh, music for this movie as well. So yeah, it, it obviously uh, more recent productions have cast people of color in these main roles and it kind of feels a little bit more authentic. But yeah, I think for uh, w- what it is for this time period, I think it does a pretty damn good job. Yeah, and he he's making no bones about the fact that he's referencing something that he's taking that he's trying to to transform something from somewhere else with his music. Menken is. Um, do you know La Tigre, the band La Tigre? That sounds. That name sounds familiar. Uh, they have they have a they had a punk song twenty years ago. They're like feminist punks, and they had they had a song called Decepticon where um they they like invert some some kind of they they take who put the bump in the bomb sha bomb sha bump and who put the ram in the ramalama ding dong oh uh, of course yeah they 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 like mess with that a little bit so it's 20 years later and the guy who put that crap out is suing them for it and like first of all like it, it absolutely meets the fair use criteria under being transformative i was just reading about this last night but second of all uh the lawyers for le tigre looked into it and they're like well wait a minute you took who put the bomb in the bomb should bomb should pump from this black group and you took who put the ram in the ramalama ding dong from this other black group. And so like if anything, they should be suing you. So they they not only successfully defended themselves, but they they lit this dude on fire. I think uh, his last name is man. I can't remember his first name. It might be Henry. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was just up late reading that little legal article of like, oh, La Tigre's in a legal fight. What happened? Oh, wow. of course, somebody tried to tried to say that they <laughs> took something that they didn't. Classic. It's amazing to me how that works. And it's also, you know, an issue for us as parody artists. Like, like what are where are the lines? What can we do? What, like, is it what's fair use? What isn't? Totally. And like I, I and one thing that I think is interesting is like, you know, uh, parodying something that you like and care about rather than just kind of like, oh, this is a popular thing. Let me take it and let me do a take on it and it just is empty yeah yeah it's it's amazing to me how weird al has has kept himself so interesting and relevant over years and years and years well i was literally talking about this the other day that like it's because he genuinely loves pop culture and the artists that he parodies and like how paul mccartney and elton john collaborate with like modern day pop artists because they're like these people are interesting and they are leading the way so let's jump on and be a part of that and that uh, really makes a difference um but speaking of making a difference uh <laughs> let's uh, are you ready to uh make a difference in our movie rankings and rate little shop of horrors <laughs> what's the scale of rating well i'm glad that you asked uh we rate everything here on a scale of zero to five you can be as specific uh and minute with your decimal places and all that but uh, Johnny, we'll start with you. What would you rate Little Shop of Horrors today? Oh, how could it? How could it be less than five I mean, there's, there's, it's one of the most unique, wow. funny, interesting, full of great singing and great songs. I mean, yeah, the back half drags a little bit, but come on, it's, it's, 
it's a fantastic movie. I pi- I mean, I picked it because it's- yeah, like try try watching this without having like a big shit eating grin on your face. <laughs> It would be very hard. And I'm actually pretty close with you. I'm giving Little Shop of Horrors a 4.4. I agree that it's a lot of fun. I had a great time watching it. And like it sticks with you for a reason. And crunching the numbers, we're collectively giving Little Shop of Horrors a 4.7, which puts it like it's in the top 10 now of all of the movies that we've reviewed on this podcast. So that's pretty spectacular. We put it right uh, in between the Muppet movie, the original Muppet movie, and Wreck-It Ralph. So, uh, Legends... Oh, that's that's good company. Yeah, so uh, Frank Oz uh, can sit at the top of the charts forever together. Um, uh, and also, I, I forgot one fun fact that I just wanted to quickly stay, say before we sign off, that um, uh, after Little Shop of Horrors is when uh, uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, uh, they started working on Little Mermaid. And as they finished Little Mermaid, they realized that part of your world is very similar in sound and uh, uh, vibe to somewhere that's green. And so they, the two of them nicknamed a part of your world somewhere that's wet. So that's just like a fun little... Uh, <laughs> little thing to come off but uh johnny thank you so much for uh coming on and uh talking about little shop with me uh what would you like to plug today um before i do that could i say one more thing about the movie oh of course of course um you know my mom loved this movie she was actually the one who would be she was always like watching the tv guide and stuff and and paying attention to when things were going to be on marking the calendar with like this is going to be on then because that's what we how we had to live then no no streaming no choosing what you wanted to watch and we didn't didn't even have cable so um i just remember in fact i remember that like when i was five the cable got shut off and that was like a big moment of realization for me about the fact that we were going to be a little different from everybody around us um the way it happened was like i'm watching like david the gnome or something like that and and the guy comes and shuts it off and then my mom's like screaming at him like wait till my husband comes home wait till my husband comes home and then, you know, the guy leaves and later that day, my dad comes home and says, you know, well, if you want, if you want cable, get a fucking job yourself. And, and I'm starting at five years old to realize what kind of family I am in and what kind of issues we have. And my mom loved, loved this movie. And her favorite song was suddenly Seymour. And we didn't understand it exactly then why she liked that one so much. To me, it was one of the more boring songs, especially like as a kid, because I did, I wasn't into the whole love piece of it i was more into like the conflict of they were course. having and the and the humor of it but but now i'm looking back at it and i'm like oh of course she like suddenly seymour you know she had four abusive husbands in her life and then you know to see somebody like audrey sing this song about like well what if what if i could believe in someone that just meant a lot to me yeah that's that's really yeah thank you for sharing that that's yeah that's a really important thing that like we kind of touched on but yeah, not exactly in that way. Um, but yeah, Johnny, thank you so much for um, coming on. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'll say it again. Uh, is there anything that you would like to plug today? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, on, ooh, on on the 17th, I'm at Jose Pistola's. I'm running my show, Alternative Comics, a showcase of queer and BIPOC comedians. Everybody on that lineup is queer or BIPOC. And there's an open mic after, which is open to everybody. 
And then on December 9th at Dalek, we're going to have that music show. So I tried to get all the music comics in Philly together. I'm sure I missed somebody, but there aren't that many of us. As as Jay Simpson said, we don't have a deep bench. But uh, yeah, it, come to Dalek on on December 9th to see all the music comics in Philly get together in one place. Including me. Including you, Ross. So uh, if you think, wow, Ross is great, but what if we talked, what if he talked for only 10 minutes instead of 45 minutes? That's the show for you. <laughs> um, but uh, as always, uh, write and review us uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and, and, you know, share with a friend. Give us a recommendation if you, you think a friend would like it. But that is all for today. We will hear you in a fortnight and go, go gadget and show.